This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. Some startling revelations out of the investigation into that incident in New Mexico involving Alec Baldwin and the death of the cinematographer of the film he was working on, as well as the injury of the uh, director of that film. So we will go in-depth on the latest developments. And remember when we told you about Merck's potentially groundbreaking antiviral pill to treat COVID infections? Well, suppose there were another option even more effective and even cheaper. Well, we'll get into that too. Getting closer to shots for kids ages 5 to 11, their COVID vaccine. So question is, will anxious parents take the kids to get the shots? One of the biggest factors holding back economic growth in this country and making the labor shortage worse is child care. You can't find it. It's not affordable. So we'll talk about it. And we'll take a look at the new universal basic income program coming to 3,000 residents of L.A., making it the largest experiment of that type in the country. But we start with the uh, Alec Baldwin film. Chris Lindahl is a uh, uh, business reporter on the film industry for IndieWire. Chris, thanks for being with us. Uh, looking at and watching the news conference this morning out of New Mexico, it was pretty startling. The sheriff saying that it, there was complacency on the on the set. There also the, the revelation that there was an actual, at least one suspected bullet, the one that, that killed and then hit the director. None of that should have been happening on that set. Yeah, I, you know, I think that uh, a picture is really coming together and it's a picture that we have been piecing together over the last few days, I guess almost a week now since Helena Hutchins was killed on that set in New Mexico. Um, things definitely went wrong. I think the sheriff at this point um, was very careful to not um, suggest you know, anything specific about criminal wrongdoing because he says, along with the DA, that the investigation is ongoing and they have a lot more people to interview about that. As we piece it together, though, I mean, how still startling is it to you that all these corners apparently had to be cut or all these mistakes apparently had to be made or, or multiple things had to go wrong to even get us in a place to where we are today with what we know? Yeah, I think the, the, the most shocking revelation today was the fact that there was indeed a, you know, a actual lead bullet that that struck Helena Hutchins. Um, well, prior to striking her, it it hit Joel Souza, the director, in the arm, and then it, it carried on and, and delivered a fatal blow to Helena Hutchins, the cinematographer. Um, you know, there's certainly exceptions, but the fact that a live round of that nature, like an actual bullet, was on the set is definitely something that raises concerns. And, um, you know, in, in those rare circumstances that live bullets are on a set, there's, you know, the, the kind of standard is that there's so many controls on it and there's, you know, such careful attention placed on the safety around them um, that theoretically something like this should never be allowed to happen. What I thought was also interesting out of that news conference was that they wouldn't rule out uh, criminal charges against anybody, and that included Alec Baldwin. Yeah, you know, they really, they're, they're kind of painting a picture that this is a complex case. That's the word that the, the DA used. Um, it's a complex case. It's going to require a lot of interviews. It's going to require ballistics and forensic evaluation. They're actually using the FBI crime lab in Quantico, Virginia for that. Um, but, but yeah, that, you know, they haven't ruled out any criminal charges at all. And they were very specific about that. And I think that 
It's important to note that as this investigation continues and as we learn more about this, both through police reports and through the kind of reporting um, that my colleagues and, and, you know, that I and my colleagues at other outlets are doing, talking with crew, um, you know, th there are, there's multiple people on this set that were responsible for firearm safety, um, you know, and, and that theoretically, you know, those people could also have some sort of criminal culpability here too, if it's determined by the authorities that, you know, they share some of the blame. Chris Lindahl reports on the business of the film industry for IndieWire. And when we return, we'll report on safety protocols on the set of Baldwin's film and how it compared to conditions on other movie sets. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Still to come, Merck agrees to making its antiviral COVID pill more widely and cheaply accessible. Before that, the FDA uh, says okay to the vaccinations for younger kids. The panel, the FDA goes next, and then the CDC after that. Uh, so we're getting closer to the kids getting their shots. Right now, though, Santa Fe County Sheriff investigators recovered some 500 rounds of ammunition, which included a mix of blanks, dummy rounds, and possibly live rounds from the New Mexico set of Alec Baldwin's movie Rest. From all indications, that is not supposed to be standard operating procedure in film sets. Mike Tristano is owner and operator of the movie set Weapons and uh, Armors Company, Mike Tristano and Company. Mike, thanks for being with us. Uh, just moments ago, there was some breaking news on this, and let me run this by you since you're a, an expert in the field. And this is, uh, according to CNN, it says that the assistant director, that's the guy that uh, earlier reports told Alec Baldwin that it was a, a cold gun that he was being handed, uh, something that couldn't fire. But this report says that uh, he acknowledged to investigators that he did not check all the rounds loaded into the weapon prior to the lethal shooting. And they're quoting a search warrant affidavit, affidavit that was made public earlier today. What do you make of that? Well, <clears throat> to me, that seems like he wasn't shown the rounds that were being loaded by the armor. I mean... Whenever we walk onto a film set, the the, the round the, the gun isn't loaded yet. I load the blanks in, and I mean only blanks, in front of the first AD, in front of any of the actors or actresses that are involved in the shot, and anybody else who wants to see them, so that everybody knows what's being loaded and they that, that they would feel comfortable with that. So how how he didn't ask to see all of those is a question right there. But also why he wasn't shown that he shouldn't have to ask. Yeah, and this is standard procedure, right? Everybody who's going to be involved in that kind of chain of custody should see it all the way through. And then even at the end, the actor should ask. I think last time we talked, I said, what if I'm an actor, what do I do? You said you pretend like you've never seen a gun in your life before, and you ask every question in the book. Right, yeah. I mean, we have a pretty strict protocol for this. But the actor needs to be shown what's in that gun, too, The actor or the, or the actress, depending on what we're on. But, you know, we run that very strictly. So everybody sees what's going on on the set. And if there are dummy rounds involved, we we load the dummy rounds after we've shown them, uh, you know, the, the uh, you know, people around that they have a, either a punch primer or that if we shake them, there's BBs in the in the casing, which means, means there's no gunpowder. And then we point after we load the dummies, we point the gun down at the at the ground. And we click off each of the, a hammer on each of the rounds, you know, the hammer on the gun on each of the rounds, 
to show everybody that there's no way these are live rounds so that they could ever fire any projectile. So the sheriff uh, there in New Mexico, Mike, said this morning that, and he was choosing his words very carefully, he said that there was complacency, that's his word, on the set. Is that the word that you would use? Um, if, it, if he's meaning it in the terms that no one was really um, on it about, about the gunfire and any of the, any of the firearms, uh, I agree with him. I totally agree. Um, that is something you have to be on all the time. The guns never leave the possession of the armor until they're handed to one of the talents, an actor or an actress. Um, there is no middle person, and there, and there is never a reason any firearm, whether it's even a replica, uh, you know, like a non-firing replica or a blank firing gun, should ever be left unattended by the armorers. That doesn't happen, at least on our sets. So the idea that maybe, or the reports that maybe there had been mixing, that they were out doing target practice, or that, you know, obviously they're going to test this live round, as they termed it, but the fact that maybe there's others. They seized a bunch of ammunition, they're going through it, it's going to the lab to see what's what. Right. I mean, how any armorer could have blanks mixed in with dummies, mixed in with live rounds, is incomprehensible. All of that is very separated. The blanks are in separate boxes. The dummies are in, usually the way we have the dummies, the dummies have already been loaded and tested and then taken out of the gun again, and they're in a small bag with each gun so that each gun has its own dummies that go with it. And live ammunition is never on the set, ever. What about the actor himself, in this case, of course, Alec Baldwin? From the reports we've heard thus far, he was practicing for what they were about to film, shooting directly at the camera lens. But right. knowing that there were, I mean, because clearly I would think he was able to see that there were people behind and next to that camera. There was the cinematographer, of course, who unfortunately was killed. There was the director who was injured. Is that a sort of standard operating procedure, even for an actor using a gun that he or she believes to be uh, firing blanks? There, yeah, there's nothing out of the ordinary there. I mean, we... My my team and I, we have a different process where for any rehearsal, we hand the actor a rubber gun or a non-firing replica of the weapon he's going to use. So if he wants to pull the trigger, he can if that's part of the action. And he should feel comfortable doing that. I don't believe that Mr. Baldwin did anything wrong. And I certainly don't believe that the DP or the director did anything out of the ordinary because they were lining up a shot. This was a rehearsal. So the DP probably said to him, and of course, she would have no reason to think there was anything in that gun, neither with the director. She probably said, you know, Alec, point the gun over here. We want to get a, a pointing mark for you for when you actually do the scene and pull the trigger, which is what he's going to do in the shot. So he, he's just doing what he's been told. She's doing how she usually sets up a shot, which is totally correct. She didn't do anything out of the ordinary. And the director was behind her, probably looking at the monitor on the camera to, to see how the shot was lining up. So that's all pretty normal. It's how the gun got to the set that is the issue here. You know, why wasn't that gun checked and then, you know, by the armorer and then rechecked by the AD before it got into Mr. Baldwin's hands? Mike Tristano, owner and operator, the movie Set Weapons and Armors Company, Mike Tristano and Company. Thanks. And, and by the way, uh, the DA indicated this morning that it might be quite some time until we have answers to some of the questions that you just heard uh, Mike there raise. When we come back, the breakthrough COVID treatment might not be an antiviral pill, but 
might be an antidepressant. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Charles Feldman. I'm Mike Simpson. Later on in the show, uh, Los Angeles taking a stab at a universal basic income, setting up the biggest experimental program in the entire country. Also, we'll talk about working parents. They are sounding the alarm over an acute lack of affordable and accessible child care. In fact, they say it's holding back the nation's economy. Right now, though, we told you a few weeks back about Merck's antiviral pill that could prove to be an extremely effective treatment for COVID infections. We're going to talk about it a little later on today as well. But what if we told you there was this antidepressant already widely available that could be even better than the Merck pill and it costs less? Dr. Jeffrey Kosner, epidemiologist and clinical professor of preventative medicine at USC Keck School of Medicine. So we talked about this uh, a while back as well, I think. Tell us what it is and what we know about it. Yeah, hi, uh, very happy to be here with you guys. So this is a medication called fluvoxamine and fluvoxamine has been an antidepressant. It's a medicine that's used to treat obsessive compulsive disorder that's been you know, used for more than 25 years in the United States and all over the world. It's a very safe medicine and um, some very smart, insightful uh, research psychiatrists from Washington University in St. Louis uh, knew that this medicine actually had a powerful anti-inflammatory effect. And it was being studied in you know, treatment of sepsis and um, uh, complications from excess inflammation for uh, several years. And when they saw you know, early on in COVID that you know, people were dying from the inflammation and it's really you know, the inflammation that causes uh, your lungs to fill up with fluid, it causes this cement-like material to form the lining of your lungs, um, all that's related to excess inflammation. So they said, hey, if this drug has, you know, stopped inflammation in, in mice, has, you know, stopped inflammation in other conditions, what might its potential be for stopping inflammation in COVID? So they studied it uh, last year, was reported a small clinical trial in uh, Journal of American Medical Association in November that was followed up by a, a study at a horse racetrack up in the San Francisco Bay Area. And both those studies saw profound effects, but you know, everyone was a little bit skeptical. We were going through that whole you know, crisis of conscience with hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin. And um, researchers though, you know, wanted to continue studying it. So they continued studying it in Brazil. They did a very large study, 1500 people, half got this drug fluvoxamine, half got a placebo, and now the results are out and they're quite striking. Uh, there was um, about, you know, a substantial uh, effect on reduction in hospitalization and a 91% reduction, 91% reduction in uh, mortality in the number of people who died. So people got placebo, um, 12 people died, but only one person died in the fluvoxamine group. Uh, so that's a very powerful uh, effect. And uh, this drug is widely available. It's inexpensive. The average wholesale price is 25 cents a pill. So actually $5 compared to you know $700 for the Merck product. $5 for a 10-day course, and it really could be groundbreaking. Okay, so now let's sort of kind of, you know, unpack some of that because there are a couple of questions that are raised, at least in my mind, from what you just said. I mean, the Merck drug 
correct me if I'm wrong, I mean, the Merck drug is a antiviral, right? And it's designed to uh, be given to somebody in the very early stages uh, of the disease or when they test positive for COVID. And the idea is to actually stop the replication of the virus. So far, so good? Yeah, correct. It's an antiviral. It's a right. filtering block. It inserts into the viral replication cycle and just stops the virus from reproducing. Okay. The antidepressant, as I understood what you just said, is not an antiviral, of course, but it, its main mechanism is to uh, curtail inflammation. But isn't inflammation a kind of later stage issue with COVID infections? And for somebody who just gets COVID, would this drug be the drug of choice? Well, the treatment course is 10 days, and they found in the study that the earlier was started, and the more pills uh, people took, if they completed at least 80% of the 10-day course, they were much more likely to have the sub substantial benefits. So, you know, I would say, yes, if you just took it for the first couple of days, immediately after finding out you have infection, probably not going to be as helpful than if you took it for the full 10-day course. And, you know, one reason why, you know, people with chronic diseases like diabetes or obesity or hypertension or older people get sicker is because of the inflammation, right? So children and young, otherwise healthy people generally don't get that sick because they don't have the same kind of severe inflammatory response. Dr. Jeffrey Klausner, epidemiologist, clinical professor of preventative medicine, USC Keck School of Medicine. Doctor, thanks. Young kids officially eligible to get their COVID vaccinations, but the question is, will nervous parents take them? This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So the FDA advisory panel signing off on emergency use authorization for COVID vaccines for the kids 5 to 11. And if all the other steps that need to be taken get taken and things go this way, the shots could be going into arms next week. Question is, will anxious parents actually take their kids to get them? There are an estimated 28 million kids in the age range who will be eligible. So let's uh, try to get into that a bit with Dr. Christopher Longhurst, who's a professor of pediatrics and chief medical officer for UC San Diego Health. Doctor, thanks for being with us. So I've seen the polling and the polling would suggest that there may be more resistance from uh, parents about having their children get vaccinated than from some adults about getting vaccinated. And uh, as a pediatrician, I'm sure that that probably concerns you greatly. Absolutely. And thanks again for having me on. I can tell you that I have two children, ages 9 and 11, and I absolutely plan to get them vaccinated uh, next week once this is approved. And I think that all parents should strongly consider this as well. Of course, the best person to talk to about your uh, concerns is your pediatrician or family practitioner. But even while children have low rates of COVID and low risk overall, the reality is that we've had 6 million children infected with COVID and not all of it is low risk, right? In fact, the risk of the vaccine is far lower than the risk of COVID side effects. On top of that, getting your children vaccinated can also protect others, whether those are older people in the family or older people in the community. And to that second part, is that something that some people miss because they automatically go to the first and they say, okay, it is a low risk. Maybe my, my child will get COVID, but, but they're probably going to be fine. But the second one, we think just normal cold and flu season, the kids are like disease vectors. They take it everywhere. You're absolutely right. 
And in fact, we know that um, one of the reasons that we see higher rates of deaths in nursing homes and places like that in January and February is because kids visit over the holidays in December and they actually share their viruses. And so there's no doubt that uh, protecting children against um, coronavirus will help to protect those susceptible elderly or immunocompromised, right? Lots of families have uh, uh, family members with uh, cancer treatment, that sort of thing. Okay, so let me throw at you, and I'm sure you've heard this, uh, some of the arguments that parents are making, uh, those who are concerned or say they're not going to uh, have their kids vaccinated, they say, well, you know, this is a vaccine hasn't been uh, studied long enough in uh, children. Another argument they make is we want to wait and see what the research has to say. And then, of course, there's the the third argument that some adults have uh, used and continue to use that this is still, quote, an experimental vaccine. So how do you deal with those arguments? Yeah. First of all, I understand where parents are coming from. I mean, sometimes we take our kids' safety and health more importantly than we take our own, right? Now, that being said, I think it's really important to understand no vaccine in history has ever been as well-studied as this vaccine, right? It's been administered to over a billion people, um, and the amount of outcomes data we have on that far exceeds anything that's ever come before. The safety testing for COVID vaccines in children is simply the same that it is for all vaccine trials. And we know that the majority of side effects that occur do so in the first four weeks after someone gets a vaccine. So from a safety standpoint, I would feel confident that there's really no, no, no vaccine that's ever been better studied than this vaccine. The myocarditis issue slash news coverage, uh, do you think that plays a role that the heart inflammation? And I guess that goes back to your earlier point um, that you're probably more likely to get myocarditis from COVID than the COVID vaccine. You know, you nailed it. Sometimes the initial headlines get more attention than the follow-up headlines. And there certainly is a, a, a small but real risk about myocarditis associated with the vaccine. What we've learned though, is that all cases that have been vaccine associated have been rare and mild. Um, and the risk of myocarditis, as you suggest, is actually higher from getting COVID. And so again, this is not a reason to avoid vaccinating your children age five to 11. Dr. Christopher Longhurst, Professor of Pediatrics, Chief Medical Officer, UC San Diego Health. Coming up next, America's vast child care problem. You're listening to KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. There is a crisis in this country, and I know you're saying which one, because <laughs> there's so many, uh, but we're, all, we're talking about the, the crisis of child care. Now, it was made worse, no question about it, because of the pandemic, and it is likely playing a role in the country's ongoing labor shortage, and mainly because, as I think any parent knows, child care is really expensive. President Biden and his fellow Democrats say they want to address the problem, but uh, whether extensive federal funding is in the final package uh, remains to be seen. Mary Ignatius, organizer for Parents Voices, parent-led grassroots group fighting for accessible, reliable child care. Thanks for being with us. So, yeah, I mean, to set the baseline, as we were doing, even before the pandemic, we were kind of in this weird place. Uh, it costs a lot to get child care, but for the workers, too, it's often low-wage jobs, and we were kind of limping along, and now, again, we're in an even worse place than we were before. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me with you today. Uh, 
you know, childcare was essential before the pandemic, it was essential during the pandemic, and it is going to be essential for us to have a inclusive economic recovery for, for all of us. And so while we were, you know, holding on before the pandemic, just the whole, the whole system is just on the verge of collapse. Like I, I can't even be more dramatic about it. We, you know, when you mentioned the labor shortage, there's the labor shortage for, um, for parents who are looking for work and need childcare um, to get to work. But then there's also now a labor shortage of early educators who are leaving the field because it's not sustainable. The wages aren't sustainable. They can go to Costco or In-N-Out and get, you know, uh, minimum California's minimum wage benefits and more job security. So in your view, Mary, what would the ideal or maybe even not ideal, but workable solution be? And and are you confident that a, a workable solution is going to end up being part of uh, President Biden's final you know plan that Congress will hopefully approve? Yeah, I mean, I I believe that for far too long we have made figuring out your childcare solutions an individual family issue. We've left it up to individuals to figure it out, and it's not sustainable. It doesn't work. And the only way we're going to be able to address the affordability issues and the need to pay higher wages for this early educator workforce is a government solution. And and so we have, you know, this week, we will know uh, what will be part of President Biden's Build Back Better plan. I feel... um, cautiously optimistic. I believe the signals we're hearing from uh, the president, he's tweeting about it all of the time. They're visiting childcare programs. Um, We're hearing from Congress members like Speaker Pelosi, Representative Jayapal. I mean, they're making childcare a, you know, a priority. And that is exactly what we need. How does this work in other wealthy countries? Yeah, well, in other wealthy countries, um, we, they, excuse me, uh, prioritize the needs of their, their youngest residents. And, you know, yes, the taxes are, are higher, but the benefits to provide access to quality early learning programs from birth um, and having a, a, a well thought out comprehensive government system Um, allows for higher workforce participation of women and for mothers and fathers. You know, there's paid family leave, there's affordable, accessible childcare. um, And on all, you know, statistics and data of just outcomes, they're all positive. Whereas in the United States, where we are, we are investing the least amount into paid family leave and childcare. And we're seeing the outcomes, you know, we're seeing children really struggle and uh, that starts early because of brain development. And so when we try and fix the problem way down at the other end, when they've already, um, we've just, we've missed the boat. And so the earlier we invest, the sooner everybody is going to benefit. The... um... I'm just looking at, at something here that, that says that there's, uh, and this would be unfortunate if it turns out to be the, the case, unfortunately, but it says that the uh, the paid 
family leave portion of the uh, the bill, the legislation that uh, the president was trying to get through is apparently now not going to be in the final version, and that would be unfortunate. That would be so unfortunate. Uh, you know, we as working parents need to be able to both work and parent with dignity. And when we have newborn babies, we know that the most important part of their development is the, the stability and the security and the attachment that they have with their, with their caregivers and their, and their parents. And I've talked to so many families who, who don't have access to this program. They have to choose between going to work or um, being there to nurse their baby or, or care for their child. I have two sons. I was able to access paid family leave. Uh, it helped me I mean, in ways I can't even count. And the fact that it's not something that's available to all families and whether it's for a newborn baby, an adoptive baby, a child, if it's to care for your um, elder relatives. I mean, the pandemic showed just how critical we, we are. Um, you know, we need a village and we need to take care of each other. And paid family leave was one of those programs that really helps working working families and working people be able to do both, to work and care for, for their loved ones. And it would be uh, a complete travesty if it was eliminated from the final bill. When we talk about things in terms of childcare and the economy, sometimes I think we think of right now, next six months or whatever it is, but this is also like an upward mobility issue. This is who can take jobs when someone goes back to work, what kind of job they end up taking. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There was a study by the Economic Policy Institute that for those who are working and don't have access to childcare and can't access childcare and can't go to work, we're losing $35 billion a year because they aren't working. And when uh, we have seen when families have access to quality, affordable childcare, they are completing education and getting degrees, making them more uh, attractive in the workforce. They are going to work and they are stable employees with peace of mind. And then they're able to build their careers and, you know, have stable job employment on their resumes for more than like two months or three months or six months, but like one year, two year, five years. And so, you know, for any working parent, you can't walk out the door unless you know your child is being taken care of. And this is, childcare is an economic driver, whether it's for the families who are working, whether it's for the early educators and the increased wages they get from it, they're putting all of that back into the economy. They're not, you know, saving it in bank accounts or offshore accounts or paying for yachts. I mean, this is money, disposable income that they use at the grocery store, at the mom and pop uh, small business in their local community, in their local economy. And that's what drives economic recovery. Mary Ignatius, organizer for Parents' Voices, parent-led grassroots group fighting for accessible, reliable child care. Mary, thanks. More in-depth is on the way. Another half an hour. And we're back on KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Pharmaceutical giant Merck voluntarily granted a UN-backed public health group permission to sublicense its COVID-19 
antiviral drug, this to manufacturers that supply medicine to low- and middle-income countries. Merck's selling the governments here in the U.S. single doses of the antiviral or courses of the antiviral for more than $700. It costs less than 18 bucks to manufacture them. John Love is a director of Knowledge Ecology International, has written an analysis on the licensing. So, John, on the surface, looks like a pretty good deal for the lower-income countries. Get the medication and uh, at a lower rate. I think it is pretty good. I mean, they, uh, Merck is the first country to offer an open license for manufacturers around the world to supply cheap generic versions of its, of its, of its new therapeutic for COVID. It's 105 countries. The number of people living in those countries is about 54% of the world's population. So it's uh, the bottom half of the world's population that has a per capita income of around $2,500 a year. So when they license out this information and their recipe for this pill, in terms of bringing the costs down, what do we expect? How low can they go to make sure that it actually has an effect in these countries and, and people can afford to, to go through this round of treatment? Well, Merck is licensed to really the, the best uh, uh, and most efficient generic companies in the world to produce a drug. Right now, I think the U.S. price for a course of treatment, which is uh, being treated in the morning and the evening, five days a week. So it's 10 times you take the, the medicine, $712. But I think people reckon that the price in generic countries will be more closer to, to the $20 per treatment range. So it's really a huge difference between what the price would be, for example, in the United States and what it would be in this licensed area. Now, do the wealthy countries then have the ability to go back and say, why is the deal different for us? Or is it just recognized that that price in the poorer countries you'd never be able to reach it. No one would end up taking this. Yeah, I, I, in the past, this has been done for HIV drugs, actually a very similar license area. So you can you, you can take uh, HIV cocktails that cost over $40,000 a year in the United States, and you can buy them for less than $100 in the licensed area, in the HIV area. And that has not really created a problem. I think it's, it's recognized that uh, the income differences are so stark and the access would be so different that it was the right thing to do. And it hasn't really undermined the market for the companies in the higher countries. Now, we're, we're concerned about high prices in the United States everywhere. I mean, we monitor drug prices. We're often kind of on the other side of drug companies on the drug pricing issues. But as it relates to the people in this licensed area, Merck has really done the right thing. And it's also put more pressure on the other companies that haven't done the right thing. Yeah, we had a discussion not too long ago about the price here in the U.S. And whether the Biden administration would go and try and renegotiate that. But I'm also curious because we were the first to actually make the bulk buy. If there was concern before this happened that with the U.S. going in and buying so much that there wouldn't be a lot of these pills running around for the rest of the world. But now that problem seems to have been solved. Well, I think what, one of the motivations Merck probably had is they probably wanted to focus their sales on the high income countries, starting with the United States, but also Europe, Japan, other places where incomes are higher. And they would have been criticized for having diverted most of their production to the United States or other high-income countries. Well, uh, the majority of people that are suffering from COVID live in poor countries and have less access to vaccinations. But I'm wondering about the testing apparatus, because for this to work the way it's supposed to, you know, you're supposed to come down with symptoms, then you need to confirm that it's this within, I don't know, a couple of few days at least, so you can start taking the pill and get on the regimen. But if you can't test fast enough, then how are you going to know? I think it's exactly right. This is a, uh, sort of held out as a, as, as a product that is only effective if it's used early uh, after you're infected and less effective if you wait. 
So testing is really critical. Another, another thing that I think is unresolved is the safety profile of the drug. Some of the early um, concerns about the drug are why BARDA passed on it in 2020 and why Pharmacet passed on it earlier because there was concerns it might be, um, it, uh, it might not be safe. And uh, we're waiting to hear what the FDA says and what the European regulators say is in terms of how they expect the drug to be used. If it was completely safe, it, it looks like it would be potentially a game changer, in a, as you mentioned, in a test and treat scenario. But if it's not completely safe, uh, then, then I think people have to scale back their expectations of how important this particular drug will be. John Love, Director of Knowledge Ecology International. Coming up, $1,000 a month paid out to 3,000 households in L.A. No strings attached. It can be the logic basic income experiment in the country, but will it work? And this is KNX In-Depth, Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Universal basic income programs, they've been tried in the past. Stockton, California, by the way, was the first city in the U.S. to implement a program where 125 people were paid 500 bucks a month with little to no strings attached. And they had pretty good success. Stockton residents who received $500 in guaranteed income were more than twice as likely to secure full-time jobs as people who were in a control group. So now the basic income Income experiment comes to Los Angeles starting Friday. The city will be taking applications to find 3,000 households to be paid $1,000 a month. Current price, Los Angeles City Council member represents the 9th District. Councilman, thanks for being with us. This is something that you are pretty excited about. Yeah, we're very excited about it. This is going to be a real game changer uh, for families and for our, our larger community uh, to uh, have uh, 3,000 uh, participants in this program. They'll be receiving $1,000 a month, as you mentioned, for a year, no strings attached. And so this is going to be the, the largest uh, guaranteed basic income pilot effort uh, in the country. And we're excited that it's occurring right here in our backyard uh, in CD9 and in the city of Los Angeles. So what is the goal of this experiment? Well, the goal is to, is to demonstrate that uh, people, though, although maybe poor, still have a good sense of how they should, how they want to spend their income and, and, and how they can prioritize their spending. Uh, in past experiments, uh, we've learned that uh, individuals who participate in these kinds of programs, uh, you know, don't whittle away the, the money uh, on, on drugs or, or booze, but instead are, are buying the basics, of, uh, rent, um, clothing, um, educational programs, food, uh, getting the car repaired, uh, those basics that are required to, to survive. And so we think that individuals, uh, when given additional resources, can make intelligent decisions uh, how to best, to, uh, how to best um, meet those needs. We mentioned a piece of the Stockton experiment. I think things have been replicated in some of the others. And it's, it's like a mobility factor, right? People either get full-time jobs or, or are able to look for different jobs. Why do you think that is? Is it the extra money frees up a little time? You don't have to take every shift so you can go apply for a gig? Or like you said, you get the car fixed, you can drive yeah. further to a job? Well, it's been a combination of, of things. Sometimes it's back to, back to not having transportation or having reliable transportation. Um, uh, taking uh, this extra money so it takes a load off of other concerns you have, uh, other bills and payments and other pressures. Uh, so it just provides you a different kind of mindset as, uh, you know, would occur with most individuals if they got an extra thousand dollars a month 
<laughs> but un- to use as they, as they saw fit. All right, but, but so the ultimate aim is to get people motivated uh, or to free them up so, because they've got a sort of basic income to go and, and find work that provides them with income beyond the year, right? Well, uh, well that's true. We want, to, we want to certainly help create some financial stability, uh, help them achieve some long-term financial goals. Uh, well, it's only a connect- year, so so I mean, it's, you know, long-term goals are hard to do in a year. So, well, I, that's true, but it's, it's, it's certainly possible to lay the groundwork. Okay. Uh, so, and we're going to be connecting individuals with other, but the uh, aim, forms, but, other forms. Okay, of but the aim is for them. But the aim is for them to to at the end of that year, because it's the money is going to stop, right? So, at the end of the year, the idea is for them to go and get work. Yes. Well, correct. Okay. Uh, and, and they may be working already. They, they or may they may be job. working already. You know, they may have a job. Uh, but this thousand dollars a month may help them relieve some of the other stress, some other issues that are impeding their growth and development and the and the, the success of their families. Okay, so so we mentioned at the outset the experiment that was tried in Stockton, California. So that's one. How much research? How many experiments of that type have actually been done so that there's confidence, a high confidence level, that this will work? Well, you know, there've been uh, a half dozen or so all around the country, and. Uh, We've gotten the uh, the organization that has been doing those programs, uh, providing the technical assistance in this one as well. So it will have the full uh, academic uh, uh, credibility for it. Uh, in addition to the individuals uh, receiving the benefits, there's going to be another control group of another 3,000 individuals that uh, uh, will be surveyed, uh, will be involved. Uh, and so we really want to dig deep, uh, get the basic uh, demographic information and uh, find out, uh, you know, how successful the program has been. Where does the money for this trial run come from? Uh, it comes from our city, uh, city uh, discretionary funds. Uh, there's some uh, COVID money involved, I believe, as well. Uh, but it's primarily funds from the city. Uh, you mentioned just now to find out at, at the end of the year, I suppose, how successful the program has been. What's the definition of success? Well, uh, you know, I don't uh, have all the details now as we still, as we sort of create that, uh, that program in the, in other programs though, it's been those that have been, uh, you know, able to achieve work, uh, those that have been able to achieve some sense of financial stability, you know, because bills have been paid off or, or other investments made, uh, the uh, better peace of mind, uh, a better sense of security uh, with, these, with these additional funds. Uh, so we're going to be looking very closely to see what the experiences have been here in Los Angeles. It certainly has not been one uh, of the largest pool as, this, as we're talking about here, uh, 3,000 individuals. And of those 3,000, almost uh, 800 are going to be coming from my district, CD9, uh, which is the poorest, most disadvantaged um, area in the city. Uh, and so these, these funds are going to be, as I said, uh, unencumbered, uh, no strings attached. Uh, uh, those who live in the city are going to be eligible, regardless of immigration status, for example. Uh, so we have to have a real cross-section and see how successful the program has been. Thoughts experiments, if this works, if survey comes back and you like all the answers you see, how far does one take this? How much money do you put out there? Where do the cutoffs well, I don't know. I don't, go? I don't know. We're looking, at, we're looking at it certainly one year at a time. We, we can't spend money you know, in advance, but it may help us to uh, either refashion or, or or reform or recreate existing programs so that we can uh, make these resources available again as I, as I said before in ways that we have not done before. So it will instruct uh, you know the the city uh, in terms of how to perhaps better utilize limited resources. 
Do you worry at all that, at least for some people, it might end up backfiring, that they'll get the money, they'll be used to having the money for a year, then the money's going to stop after a year, presumably, and then they don't have the money? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there are going to be all kinds of situations. Uh, some uh, may be negatively impacted by that loss of money. Uh, others may be inspired, may be encouraged, may be, uh, you know, have an incentive to continue or to work harder or to get a better job uh, so that they can replace those funds. Um, those are the kinds of things we're going to be looking at, what the reaction has been and, and what the effect will be. Applications Friday. So when does it all get started and how do you choose from all the applicants that, that are going to send things in? Well, let me just say that uh, the application process begins the 29th, Friday, the 29th. It goes for 10 days through November the 7th. Uh, we were going to a drop-in center, not only in our district office from Monday to Friday, nine to seven, Saturday and Sunday, nine to five, uh, but at additional uh, information hubs, uh, Trade Tech College, All People's Community Center, Vermont Square Library, Ascot, uh, Scott, uh, Ascot Branch Library, uh, Unipero Sarah uh, Library. Uh, so we were really spreading the net widely to encourage folks to uh, to apply. Once uh, once they have applied, they'll be put in the pool. There'll be random selection of those uh, that will be participating, uh, you know, based on their uh, their compliance with the eligibility guidelines. All right, Curran Price, Los Angeles City Council member in the Ninth uh, District uh, Councilman. Thanks for talking to us. That's in depth for today. Back tomorrow, one p.m.